I feel that this is intersectionality greenwashing. And, and when we look at the supply chain of messaging, it will become clear as to how this actually occurs. Hello, and welcome to the Science is Gray podcast, a space where we explore the gray areas and intersections of science, ethics, and social justice. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate liberation activist, I believe social progress and justice depend on bringing science and ethics together for a holistic and nuanced approach to creating a compassionate and sustainable world for all beings. The clip you just heard was Nidhi Joswal, the founder and president of the Versa Foundation, an intersectional research nonprofit focusing on connecting the dots between human health and planetary health. If you have ever wondered why and how our current food system is the way it is and exactly how the mixed messaging around what is really ethical, just, and sustainable comes to be, this episode is perfect for you. Nivi and I go deep talking about her background and experience working for a large corporate food and beverage company to her having a profound personal awakening and her current focus researching and spreading information about the power of plant-based diets to change lives. Nivi has such a unique perspective as someone who was once an insider to the industry she now critiques, and she shares so many powerful insights during this conversation that I really appreciated it, and I think you will too. And really quickly before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that if you visit my website, bornvegan.org, you can find more of my work and sign up for my email list to get notified every time I release a new episode. Plus, all the links to my social media pages and YouTube channel are there if you'd like to engage with me more frequently. And if you'd like to support my work and help this podcast and information reach more people, I also just recently launched a Patreon account, and you can find the link for that in the show notes and on my website as well. All right. Welcome, Nivi, to the podcast. And I'm so happy to have you here and looking forward to this conversation today. Thank you. Likewise, it's such an honor to be here with you, Serena. Thanks. So before we kind of get into all of this, and I want to hear your thoughts on a bunch of different things. Um, but the first thing that I kind of like to have you do is just have you share with people who might not know a little bit about your background and how you got where you are today. <laughs> and um, yeah. Well, you know, it's a long story. I'm going to keep it short. Uh, I like to describe my journey as from selling mayonnaise to learning, you know, uh, individual wellness behavior change at Mayo Clinic. So it's like the journey from mayonnaise to Mayo Clinic. Um and in between that, there are you know plenty of milestones, and especially some critical ones relating to my health that um, determined and uh, you know uh, the awakening that I you know seem to have had. And uh, otherwise, previous to what I'm doing right now, which is nonprofit ownership and you know um, entrepreneurialism, I have a corporate background, and I. Um, Used to work for the consumer product, good, uh, packaged goods industry, uh, media research, um, also medical devices and life sciences, um, and have managed uh, a number of um, multinational brands um, and done consumer research and, um, you know, done a lot of work around, unfortunately, uh, spreading disease and illness. 
and uh, you know through the process food and beverage and personal care industry um i had a health scare in 2015 um that made me sit up and question as to why this was happening and especially if uh, somebody like me who had privileged um access to wellness brands and how the formulations and the recipes are created and the medical devices industry and you know and so on and if chronic illness could happen to me uh, despite all the information and no issues with access and affordability um, then no wonder you know we have the pandemic of chronic illness and public health and planetary health and climate crises the kinds that we have on our hands at this point point. and that was a turning point in 2015 um, I took about three years to unlearn the previous 20 or so years of learning about how important animal protein is to our health. And once I had unlearned it, um, I experimented uh, with whole food plant-based living on my own self and my family's health and courtesy this way of living and courtesy veganism, I'm still alive. And not just that, I'm thriving. And I felt that my skills were better applied to and placed with um, you know, uh, committing myself and my time and energy and resources to taking animals out of the supply chain of how we, you know, practice consumer decision-making in our daily lives. So that's been my journey. Wonderful. And I love hearing about people's sort of wake-up moments, especially since I haven't had those. It's And it's, um, you know, it's hard for me to relate or understand like what that process is like sometimes. So I'd love to hear more like, when you were working for these large corporate, you know, food and beverage companies, what was that like in the moment? Like, did you ever question the things you were supporting or working for while you were in that, you know, position? I did not, frankly. And I'm, I'm going to be very honest with you. I was a proud soldier, a very proud cog in the wheel. And I didn't even think that I was a cog in the wheel or just a soldier in that large army. I actually felt like many, you know, young persons um, like 20 years ago when I was just, you know, fresh out of business school, I felt I had um, arrived, you know, that I finally secured employment with some of, you know, the largest brands um, in the world. There is a lot of history, obviously, that is then presented on um, campuses during industry placement weeks and so on. The employer branding approaches that a lot of these large companies employ are fine-tuned and crafted to appeal to um, you know, students and, and to their uh, aspirations for their careers. So I actually felt that I was doing a lot of good in the world that I had finally found my purpose, um, that the brand mission that I had inherited as part of my job was well aligned with my value system at that point in time. And I didn't question it. And I think I put my might and my strength and um, uh, all of the effort that I could muster to forward that agenda. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense if you hadn't ever been um, exposed yeah. to other ideas or other ways of thinking about things. That... Well, I, I, you know, I was born in South Asia, so I was plenty exposed to ahimsa and you know uh, vegetarianism and so on. And I think it goes deeper than exposure. Um, there are things that we identify with 
in the name of progress, especially those of us who are you know, born and raised in the global south. There is a tendency to correlate um, having arrived in the world with whatever is happening in the Western part of the world, whatever is happening in the global north. It is very compelling and it's compellingly sold and packaged as such to look to the West for new ideas to you know, look at better, brighter future for oneself. And so there is the irony of being born in and immersed in a culture that speaks about ahimsa, that is the birthplace of, dare I say, ancient food ways that are precursors to the vegan movement and to, you know, everything that the lifestyle medicine, you know, professionals talk about at this point, eating whole foods, plant-based, oil-free, the protocols um, advised by Dr. T. Colin Campbell, Dr. You know, Calco Esselstyn Jr., Dr. Dean Ornish, and so on. But frequently what happens is what you have in your own backyard is something just so banal and so cliched. And as, you know, as, as a teenager and as a young adult, you want to rebel. And, you know, in that rebellion, you um, uh, look for other sources. And, and I think so we're all a product of when we're born, the place we're born, the culture that we're raised in and, and what happens to be the bright and shiny, you know, carrot that's dangled in front of you. And, and so despite all the messaging around me of all of these things that I'm now embracing and in a way going back home to and, and, you know, understanding my own identity in the context of where I come from and embracing my roots again, um, that journey back home, you know, is, is very educational and informative for me at this point in time. But yeah, I was exposed to a lot of the ideas that I'm um, reconsidering at this point. But at that time, um, I, I think it's also about the media messaging, you know, and the media messaging is we know it's it's compelling. It's, mm -hmm. you know, I was part of the advertising, promotion, communication, creation, you know, part of that world as well. And the subliminal, psychologically enticing, seductive messaging, which the most rational, the most educated, the most scientifically, you know, critical thinkers amongst us um, sometimes just can't help but fall prey to it. Well, in that marketing and messaging, was any of that, especially because some of these were, you know, food and beverage companies, was that about feeding the world or, um, you know, that these Western or, you know, the, these ideas that they were sort of bringing in and that you viewed as progress at the time, were they really putting out a message of like, these progress, the, this technology, these Western ways, these companies, these are how we're going to feed the world or um, help inequality in the global South? Because I've that's a message I've kind of heard from corporations in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. And and even more relevant in a you know place like the Indian subcontinent, where um, just like the rest of you know Africa, rest of Asia, South and Latin America, Central America, there has been a a uh, sense of, you know, this international, uh, the model of international development where uh, there's, in the name of tech transfer, in the name of ideas transfer, science transfer, there's a hand-me-down, you know, approach of let's show you how to become um, food self-reliant. How, how would you deal with lack of protein in your population? And so there's a lot of those models 
um, around welfare economics, for instance, you know, uh, farmer betterment and empowerment, you know, microcredit sort of ideas that were built in. Um, it's increasingly being called as the original green revolution that happened. Um, actually, that was part of the agri-tech transfer between the Midwest of the United States and to where I come from, which is the northwestern part of India. It's my home state is Punjab. And it was the recipient of all of the corporatization of agriculture, hybridized seeds, monocropping, um, you know, uh, some large uh, pesticide and, you know, fertilizer companies were involved and so on as part of the whole um, consortium that believes in sort of, you know, traveling from place to place. And, and they landed in my state and they effectively taught the state agricultural uh, university system how to embed these ideas with the farmers. And as a result, 40 years later, 50 years later, you have a situation where groundwater levels are completely compromised. Farmers are forced to grow certain crops that are cash crops. So surely it led to a lot of foreign exchange that was much needed for nation building, uh, you know, in post-colonial India at that point in time to come in and help with increasing discretionary incomes for Indians and resulting uh, in GDP growth. And throughout the 1980s and 1990s, there's a lot of economic growth and prosperity that was seen not just by average you know, South Asians, but also by farmers. But there's always a lag effect, you know, with, and that is exactly what we're experiencing at this point. We have these hybrid crops and certain specific branded seeds that if you plant them, but you don't tend to them with the chemical ecosystem that comes with it, uh, nothing happens. So as a result, 30% of the soil in South Asia at this point is degraded and it's unfit for cultivation. You know, if you look at the carbon wow. emissions profile of that country, it's it's hosting, uh, I was looking at some sources around 60% of the world's livestock population. I hate to use that word, by the way, so it's farmed animals population, you know, non-human, um, other than human animals that are used uh, for labor and, and for dairy farming. Uh, India is hosting climate change at this point uh, because of that. And when you look at carbon emissions profile, you can well imagine the contribution of methane in addition to the usual suspects of carbon dioxide and, and obviously nitrous oxide. Those two are even deadlier, right? So um, to, to answer your question, I think it was this model of international development where a lot of, you know, World Food Program would fund the dairy revolution or the European Economic Community would actually come put together a loan, World Bank would put together a loan for, you know, India in this case, um, for how to usher in the green revolution and so on. And, and that model is broken. And, and we know that it's completely broken because it hasn't delivered on any of the welfare economics agenda that they had in terms of farmers, um, you know, welfare. There's farmer, you know, suicides that are happening in India. Farmers are in debt, they're depressed. And, and I know that the situation is very similar in the Midwest of the United States as well. Those are the outcomes of the same formula that we've applied to our food systems. And, and at the same time, they haven't even met this original idea of we will remove hunger. We will eliminate, you know, the so-called protein deficiency in these uh, populations in the global south. Uh, so it, it's 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 a it, it's a formula for disaster, and that's exactly what we have 
on our hands at this point and being co-opted into that formula and that international development model um, because often these are public-private partnerships. You know that the governments can't do it all by themselves, so they take a lot of support and help from private industry. And and when you and and frequently the funding and and the decision making in private uh, industry is far more controlled and it's less bureaucratic, and because you know they have a profit agenda as well. And and when you partner with um, an entire system that thrives on putting, you know, purpose in service of profit, then you can, then it's very easy to feel that you're a warrior, that you're a warrior on behalf of this collective governmental public-private partnership vision, and that your moral, you know, compass is also aligned with that. And uh, it's it's very easy for you to check all the boxes, you know, as as, as you can clearly see for a young professional. And that was true for me 20 years ago. That makes so much sense, the way you explained that. And yeah, there's some deep, deep problems there for sure. And I want to get more, a little bit more into that in a minute. But first, now what you do after um, your health crisis and and, uh, having a change of heart, I guess, is you run the Versa Foundation and the Javinity Research Project. So, and it's like a, it's an, intersectional i'm not even (laughs) sure exactly what words to use to describe it but maybe you can share more about that like what are you actually focused on researching and how is this um an intersectional research project right um well thank you so much for asking that you know and and uh your description of what i do is like spot on but just add to that um we are an intersectional vegan nonprofit. And the way we bring intersectional veganism to the world, especially to consumers who need to know and be armed with this information is through research. And how we do that research is we we don't necessarily do clinical research, but we do public health research that is multidisciplinary. What do I mean by that? Um, we do two types of things in, in, in that space. One is do formal primary research projects that may be qualitative and ethnographic in nature, or they could even be quantitative in nature. Uh, and, and we sort of dip into the ecosystem of formal research firms that may be involved in recruitment of respondents. Um, uh, both of the projects that I'm referring to this point, Project Shakti, which is a qualitative project, and Project Gaia, which is a quantitative project um, investigating correlation between COVID-19 impact and dietary patterns of Americans. Both are based in the U.S. And in addition to that, we also do some secondary analysis. So, you know, I've presented uh, at Chef AJ's, uh, you know, YouTube show, my own aggregate analyses of, you know, the symbols of spirituality and, and the cow symbolism in South Asia and how inadvertently it has been picked up and amplified by the marketing community um, and has spawned the world's largest dairy sector in in the world and therefore the climate crises and and the public health and the disease of burden that that part of the world experiences. Um, So there is thought leadership through multidisciplinary secondary research aggregates and aggregatory analysis that we do. Um, I'm in the process of putting together a few physician papers that involve that sort of work 
And at the same time, we do some primary research. And, and the reason why we approach research in this unique, very distinctive kind of a way, Serena, is you know, frequently when we think about, about research, um, and you know, we, we think especially in the vegan movement or the whole food plant-based movement, um, we think about clinical research, we will think about nutrition research, we think of lifestyle medicine and how it can impact personal health. And while that's really important, and, and we know that there are so many lifestyle medicine professionals, you know, I'm a part of American College of Lifestyle Medicine as a professional member, non-physician member. I know there are people who are doing all of this work in the communities that they serve, but at the same time, we've got to remember that human beings and you know patients that come to these physicians, uh, we are emotional animals. You know, we are um, products of our beliefs and our you know uh, the symbols that run our lives, and a lot of that is you know automatic. It's just so intuitive. We identify with the culture in which we're born and raised. And, and to be able to start to chip away at that and plant seeds of cognitive dissonance at that identification or as at an identity level, just clinical research is not going to suffice. You know, to just leave that task on the shoulders of physicians by themselves who, by the way, have their hands tied back, you know, with insurers and, and all of these, uh, you know, other, the, the broken healthcare system that we have, not just in this country, but other parts of the world as well where these doctors only have 15 minutes, you know? So, so the kind of work that we do in a way assists the, the, the complete holistic argument in favor of why what we believe is so ancient and so culturally true that, you know, primitive man was a hunter, you know, before they were gatherers and, and to really question some of those archetypes that float around in our collective subconscious, that is uh, what our aim is with our research, especially with the secondary research that we do, you know? And, and it's really about planting those seeds of doubt and, and making people think about maybe these, are, these things are not as ancient as we've been led to believe. Oh, that's so cool. And um, I love the way you described that. And I'm, I've been, I'm familiar with you and your work, obviously, but I didn't fully, I don't think, grasp that the way you just explained it and how it's really looking at those stories and more the emotional side of things. And you're absolutely right. That is so important. And, you know, like I call this the Science is Gray podcast. And part of my thinking in doing that is often like science is portrayed as this, you know, black and white, end all, be all you know, collect your data, your numbers, like that's it. And in my view, it's like, like science is not inherently just or ethical and the way you collect data can be biased, the way we perceive data or information, the framing of research, it all can influence the science. And, and I feel like that's, you know, the emotionality aspect and where these stories come from is a beautiful description of that. And so on point. Yeah, and, and which is why I was just so excited to talk to you, you know, uh, about uh, on, on this podcast, which is science is gray. And I completely agree with that because, you know, science can capture or man-made, you know, human-made science and, and the way we describe science and science, the spirit of scientific inquiry, right, is about being able to capture 
whatever is within the limits of human sensory capacity, you know, and, and human rational capacity. And for that, we've created gold standards of randomized controlled trials and all the benchmarks and, you know, gold standards that we have. But at the same time, if clinical research sort of ran the world and nutrition research ran the world and, and if humans were rational, we would all be walking with washboard abs, you know, <laughs> and, and with our metabolic ages uh, being far lower as compared to our chronological ages. But we know DNA methylation is a reality. We know chronic illness is a reality. We know that um, there are psychological and emotional and trauma-informed compulsions to how we interact with food, and it goes beyond just the physical need to survive, right? So science, unfortunately, cannot um, capture uh, what is beyond just the sensory capacity of human beings. And in that sense, I think social sciences, psychology, um, and you know other disciplines are a useful ally to science. And uh, at my nonprofit, we seek to plug exactly that gap and provide that allyship. I love that. <laughs> so awesome. So um, you also recently gave a presentation on your research to the Harvard Kennedy School, correct? Yes, I did. I had a good opportunity to be able to do that. Is there anything um, you want to share about that and what that was like and what you were presenting on? Absolutely. Yes. So, um, you know, I had an opportunity to address um, the mid-career master's in public administration cohort, um, you know, for the class of 2023. And I, I was just so heartened to know that, you know, a premier educational institution in the country is actively looking into the connection of food systems, transformation, climate change, and policy decision-making, you know. So that was the topic, and, and I wasn't the only speaker we had a you know at least other four other people who um yeah four four other people who spoke and my specific you know topic was pertaining to south asia and how the symbolism of uh you know dairy and and cow and the mythology associated with it um like i mentioned has been hijacked by the modern marketing you know system but also informed um by the colonial legacy in that part of the world and what I specifically spoke about was the culture of chai. Now, when you look at um, Indian tea, uh, which you know large beverage retailers in this country um, have popularized as your chai tea latte, you know. So, what does it have? Typically, a cup of tea will have um, an Indian, you know, cup of tea will have dairy in it. It will have sugar in it. It will have um, well caffeine from the, ca from the tea plant, right? And when you look at the trifecta, there are, it, it's problematic in so many different ways. You know, one, when you look at public health or personal health standpoint, um, you've got caffeine that can trigger low-grade, um, you know, dependency, physiological dependency. We know the evils associated with the dairy farming and, and the blatant rape of you know, cows and water buffaloes that ensues and uh, through that, um, not to mention hazomorphins and, and, you know, lactose and all the other, you know, hormonal issues, the, the cocktail that that um, dairy is, and also sugar. But if we look at the history of the subcontinent, my um, main objective in making this presentation at the Harvard Kennedy School was 
to look at how the food policy of um, the British Empire was effectively um, applied to their colonies. And, and India was called the jewel in the crown of the British Raj for a reason, because uh, their, their food policy turned um, India into a tea producing country, whereas the tea plant is not even native. South Asia. Mm. You know, Indians didn't drink tea, it, Indians didn't grow tea. It it effectively turned the biodynamic um, landscape of the country by also turning it into a well, one of the largest sugar producing and exporting countries in the world. India didn't grow sugarcane and then refine it into white table sugar the way it does at this point in time. So the seeds of all of this and including the you know the board of defense of the british empire set up dairy defense farms and as uh, no defense dairy farms and and these were specifically meant for producing dairy for the troops the british troops who were posted in india at the time and they were they were in fairly large numbers because you know the empire ruled over india for nearly 100 years um so when you look at it um you you can't inform future policy that is climate compassionate, that aids in farmer transition, that informs the present day government in different parts of the world, especially in South Asia, how to subsidize that farmer transition and to um, ensure that, you know, in the public interest that educational incentives and the nutrition guidance and so on is formulated a certain way. You can't do that without understanding where it came from in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So so my intention at the Harvard Kennedy School, and this happened, um, you know, in August of this year, was to really um, provide that historical narrative and that historical perspective to the students. And dare I say, I think it was really um, positively received and uh, the event went on far longer than we originally intended for it because students had a lot of questions. Awesome. And that's so fascinating what you just shared about tea. I didn't know any of that. I, yeah, I hear like tea and chai, I think India, like I assume they've been drinking tea with milk in it for a long time. I did not realize that was part of a colonial legacy. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah, (laughs) very important. Right. And, And in fact, I can put a date to it. It wasn't until the Great Depression hit the world, which was in 1929, 1930. So it was around the late 1930s when the world's largest, very well funded, aggressive, key marketing tactic started. It was right in the middle, smack in the middle of the Second World War. And it was even positioned by, you know, the East India Company and and the British Empire and so on. And, you know, tea propagandists, that tea is the beverage of awakening. And and they found ways uh, to cleverly insert it into the narrative of the war effort um, against the, you know, the Axis powers and so on. So they found a way to be on the right side of history, you know, um, but we know that it's greenwashing. We know it's intersectionality washing. And um, we know that there is a far more sinister, once again, the same logic and the same formulaic approach to um, purpose in the service of profit in the end that is at play, right? And yeah, to, so to that extent, you know, I, I think this discussion, this discourse, 
in our universities, uh, with our students, um, especially mid-career, you know, students who are already in positions of power and influence, you know, in their country's respective governments at various levels or in private industry, it's important for them to know these things and consider these things or, you know, to have them um, be at the forefront when, when they're advising policymakers. Absolutely. So I'd actually love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on the greenwashing and intersectionality washing um, with regard to, so the work you're doing is like this intersectional justice research about planetary health and human health. And then there are a lot of other, whether it's corporations or NGOs or, you know, governments out there that are kind of presenting ag policy or food policy as though it is intersectional, in particular, the idea that I've heard a lot of like One Health. And, you know, for people who may not know what One Health is, it's um, it's something that I think the UN is talking about, as well as, you know, groups like the Gates Foundation. But it's like, um, they make it sound so intersectional, like they make it sound like this everything's all connected and you know what we do for the planet if we can focus on how that also you know our food and choices impact or, or our food systems and policies impact animals and health like we have to protect the environment to help all of us like that's kind of what it sounds like to me at face value and so as someone who is doing this intersectional research what are your thoughts on like the idea of One Health or Gates Ag One and programs like this? Yeah, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's a very important question that, that you're asking. I'm so glad that you're asking. One of the things I love about your podcast, um, Serena, is, uh, you know, the courage and, and the bravery that you have in posing these questions, you know, um, to the audience at large and, and to your guests. I think the answer is, is, you know, twofold in my uh, humble opinion. Number one, when you put these ideas to paper and, and you were to actually write down what is the theoretical precept behind which uh, One Health is founded um, or some of these really large, you know, nonprofit organizations are working, it sounds sound, you know, it, it's pretty compelling. It's it's logical, it's checking all the boxes and uh, it's it's definitely, something that a highly paid consultant probably came up with, you know, um, and has branded it now as this is the model that we're going to follow. Unfortunately, when you hand that model over to human beings with different political agendas, with different, you know, stakeholder compulsions that seem to govern um, and, and to protect the revenue uh, you know, that, that they already have and the other systems that run the world, that is exactly where contamination starts to occur. And, and that contamination of a theoretical model that sounds beautiful is, is exactly what then sort of, you know, leads to the outcomes that we see at this point in time. And, and we can safely call it greenwashing because you've taken a perfectly sound model which in the end should deliver, yes, on climate change, it should deliver welfare for people, consumers, as well as farmers involved and so on. But the how of which it is done is less than transparent. I feel that this is intersectionality, greenwashing, 
And, and when we look at the supply chain of messaging, it will become clear as to how this actually occurs. So typically a PR agency or a lobbyist, you know, whether it's you know, a, a lobby group in DC or in New Delhi or in Beijing, you know, they will sort of pick it up and they are trained, highly skilled persons who will take that theoretical precept or that theoretical model and turn it into a marketing campaign or a PR campaign and an advertising campaign. It skips over the how of how it's being delivered part. So it's free of contamination. So the route to market of the messaging is here is the model. This is how beautifully it's been packaged. And dear consumer, we're actually serving it up to you on your screen. So it's wonderful. It's innocent. It, it feels like this is the right thing for the human race to be doing. What's behind the scenes and what the consumer doesn't see is how the actors, the various actors, whether they're governmental actors or lobby actors or corporate actors are in effect turning and twisting the theoretical precept to be able to check off the boxes um, that are personally on their agenda. Now, what does that mean? I'll give you a couple of examples for that. So um, let's feed seaweed to cows such that the methane emissions from their belching and from their farts um, are actually reduced by 90%. So this is a Band-Aid approach, for instance. But mm -hmm. just that, if you were to just look at that statement, behind that, there's a lot of cash. Somebody will need to do that experiment in the first place. To do that experiment, you would need to employ talent. You will need to go and pick up that talent, recruit that talent from, you know, uh, and these will be young professionals who believe that they're doing the right thing, right? So again, employer branding, you know, comes into play. Um, and once they're in, there are huge, well-funded, well-endowed labs where they'll do that. And, and then they'll find a bunch of cows, once again, to experiment on. And that is, I mean, just eternally cruel and brutal, you know, that some animals will be sacrificed at the altar of leading at science. And, and then you will, again, look into the PR machinery to look at all the results and to talk up certain statistics and talk down certain other statistics and serve it up to the consumer all over again with that contamination this time. So you've then got a lot of disinformation that is spewed out through this entire machinery that is so well-oiled that something that starts out free of contamination in the how of it is executed and implemented actually is completely contaminated and sometimes the reverse of what they're seeking to achieve. And in the end, the consumer is either completely satisfied that this is the right way to go or the consumer is completely conflicted and confused and the cons consumer fatigue sets in because people have to get on with their lives and put you know food on the table for their families. And between that clarity of this is great and confusion of I don't know any better, we're, we're sort of tanking planet Earth, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I could go on and I just want to get off my soapbox, you know, because this it, it's a brave question. It has a complex answer with my limited knowledge of, you know, how these things work. I've shared with you how the mixed messaging comes out. But in the end, uh, unequivocally, this is intersectionality greenwashing. And, and I would just say, I would just 
put a big stamp of buyer beware on any of these messages. Now, you explained that really well, and I, I like the way you conceptualize that in terms of, um, like, the idea is great and it gets marketed as great, but then in the execution and what actually happens is where usually those moneyed interests step in and skew things, probably. So, um, no, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for sharing that because I, I very much agree with you. I don't know that I would have been able to conceptualize it like that, but yeah it's it's like in particular you know my knowledge of monsanto and the way their involvement in the green revolution and bringing pesticides and gmo patented seeds and all of this in the name of feeding the world and equality and helping people and it's like well this is just making money for you and poisoning people on the planet at the same time so i think it's so important and i think it's so important that people realize that just because something sounds good at face value or looks like it's this true intersectional progressive anti-oppression um approach to things that you need to look at what they're actually doing the how right Ab that it's getting done yeah absolutely and and if i may you know share with you another thought around this is large corporations haven't have a have the ability to step back and have a global overview of things, which is way beyond the perception or the field of view of the ordinary consumer. So mm. it's very easy to be lied to because these large organizations can choose to show very different faces to different you know, populations on the other side of the planet. So typically, you know, let's take example of one of these very large, uh, you know, charitable machines, Heifer International, right? On one hand, you know, you've got, uh, they've got like a huge network into parishes and churches, you know, in this country where they would go to entirely well, you know, meaning noble hearted, kind people who are part of these congregations and and tell them tear-jerking stories about how in Asian Africa, you know, there are these abjectly poor farmers and they can't even eke out a living, living on under 50 cents a day and so on. So they're appealing to the altruism of, you know, of a population that is that has better to do, that that's more, you know, financially better off than the recipients. And then in the name of that, they're you know, collecting seriously large amounts of money and then translating that money into traffic, trafficking um, animals and seeding animal agriculture amongst indigenous populations, you know, of the world who before then didn't have the access to capital to be able to do or participate in animal agriculture in any sense of the term. And then maybe that isn't part of their indigenous food ways, right? Mm -hmm. But they're being told there is a great business case. So essentially the same, you know, organization or partners of them will, will present this, we're doing this amazing good and around Thanksgiving or, you know, Christian holidays like Christmas or whatever, they will literally, you know, take a lot of money from uh, one population and, and then, dump it and then dump animals onto another side of the population in a way seeding avian flu, you know, in South Asia and other parts of the world where they're doing these so-called experiments. 
and, and and it's a very different face, you know. So they're a savior. It's the savior act, right? And it's that broken model of international development that we've been talking about. Uh, and this is just one example. And at the end of it, there's a lot of emotional manipulation on both sides of that supply chain, you know, at, at the donor end as mm -hmm. well as on the recipient end. And and in the middle of it all, you have these so-called happy faces of poor kids holding, you know, a goat in their hand or something and uh, and wearing a school uniform, um, you know, just showcasing them as case studies of, well, that kid couldn't have gone to school without your gifting a goat to them, you know. Right. Um, Heifer International is it's such a good example you brought up. I, I made a whole um, research video on YouTube about Heifer International at one point because I was shocked at how many people, even people that were vegan or plant-based were defending heifer international as like you know they're truly helping indigenous communities and you know how dare we criticize them and one of the things i found was i like actually went country by country where they were working in several african countries and i found the percentage of lactose intolerance in the population in those countries it's like some of the countries that they're actively trying to increase dairy production and give cows to people have like 80 to 90 percent like lactose intolerance like you're poisoning people yeah. literally yeah, absolutely and, and you're so right you know just to give you another example related to this and um so in 2012, Cambridge and University of Chicago School of Medicine got together. And I think a couple of other universities were involved as well in this research. And they did what was the largest, most complex study of lactase persistence in South Asia, specifically in India. Mm -hmm. And as you're aware, you know, India has a very unique um, system of social socioeconomic stratification and it's called the caste system. So they sourced their sample from more than 100, you know, uh, different clans and castes and five different linguistic groups, because India has more than 25, you know, languages that could be unique languages uh, in their own right. And, and there's a lot of reproductive isolation that has been achieved because of the caste system and, and injunctions around, you know, who you can marry and who can't marry and so on. So that bodes well for genetic studies. Long story short, what they found was four out of five persons of Indian origin at this point in time are lactose intolerant. Wow. Four out of five. Barely 18% are able to metabolize lactose. And lactose or lactase persistence or lactose tolerance is limited to pastoralist castes who may have been involved in the domestication of bovine cattle 10,000 years ago. And because of the caste system, it sort of, you know, stopped or softened the spread of lactose persistence, um, lactase persistence, lactose tolerance in that, um, you know, specific country. And, and it is exactly that country that has ironically become the largest consumer of milk in the world and the largest producer of milk in the world. And, and when we look at this international model, um, you know, uh, how the cooperative sector works in perpetuating, uh, you know, the dairy industry and the dairy sector, microcredit uh, loans that are offered to poor farmers and, and so on, 
it's subject of not just one, but at least four case studies at Harvard Business School, right? Wow. So we seed these ideas that our DNA, frankly, hasn't caught up to these, you know, uh, food behaviors and, and the food systems that perpetuate these food behaviors. And then we seek to glorify them at the, the mecca of education, you know, so-called in, in this country. And in doing so, we talk about how these amazing organizations are uplifting and empowering people in the global south, right? So there is greenwashing. There's a lot of um, intersectionality washing that we've been talking about. And it's just um, taking advantage of people on both sides of the spectrum. Unfortunately. Absolutely. Yeah. Marketing. Marketing and emotions. They are they're powerful. So um, to kind of go in a different direction as we get closer to the end here, what, uh, from your research and your personal experience, what do you feel like is the best approach that really is intersectional and really will facilitate human health and planetary health and help alleviate, um, you know, the inequality and lack of resource and food access that we see? Yeah. Like, you know, my personal answer to that is if you consume a whole food plant-based oil-free diet, you have a very good chance at being able to address personal health concerns. Um, if you and your community eats this way locally, seasonally, you're able to grow in your own backyard. There are plenty of resources to be able to do square foot gardening, even if you're in an urban situation and have, um, you know, poor access to open land you are able to bring in that same idea to serve public health and at the same time planetary health and you're then at your own small family individual community neighborhood level starting to exit the use of animals use and abuse of animals in agriculture and the food system that's a short answer and that is something that you know we believe at the versa foundation is the best way to do it now when we look at the planetary diet, you know, or the definition of it, which was forwarded um, a few years ago by the Lancet uh, study and, and the Lancet report, it became it quickly became controversial in some parts of the world because to be able to consume this diet, um, you have to have access, you have to be able to afford, you have to um, commit at least two hundred dollars. I'm told, you know, uh, a was it a day or a month at least? I don't know. To, and, and I need to get accurate with this data, but maybe you can put it in the show notes if you're able to just, you know, find out that yeah. statistic that I'm wanting to quote. And and when you look at the financial metrics of it, more than half of the population in Asia and Africa and in Latin America are not able to afford the planetary diet. And one would wonder well, it's super easy. Just grow these tomatoes in your backyard or just have access to produce or whatever. The issue is food apartheid. You know, what the United States Department of Agriculture famously calls food deserts, you know, and, and I'm borrowing this term from Lauren Ornelas, who's done an amazing, you know, job uh, creating food empowerment project. And, and she coined this term, food apartheid. And it's important for us to look at that and, and to understand that, it's so easy for people who have the privilege to be able to say, eat fruits and vegetables. That is the best way that you can actually check the boxes on all of the things that, you know, um, the ills that uh, we live with at this point. But it's not easy. 
when we talk about people living in food deserts, when we talk about people suffering from this food apartheid, they have little to no recourse um, and access to fresh produce. So that is exactly where it's not, not just a demand side situation, it's also a supply side and a regulatory situation that we're faced with, mm -hmm. which needs moral leadership, you know? So um, I, I can share with you theoretically what the best answer is, and I did. Whole foods, plant-based, oil-free, you know, seek to uh, ensure that animals are not part of how you're eating, at least. If what you're wearing is, isn't possible or feasible financially for you. But the real answer to transition entire communities, entire cultures, entire societies, entire economies, that needs moral leadership and on both the you know public sector as well as the, the side of the private sector. And I, I know there are whispers and murmurs uh, in that direction. Is the effort nearly enough? Um, is it quick enough? Is it going to happen rapidly enough in the face of significant decline in biodiversity at this point in time at the rate at which our earth is hotting up um, because of carbon emissions? No. And, and we're lacking the will. We're lacking the political and the moral will on part of people who have the influence and power. And, and I'm hoping that you know our research that we're doing is the drop in the ocean along with the types of research that is happening an innovative type of research that is happening around the world um, you know by institutions such as ours that maybe it can plant those seeds with people who are part of that governmental machinery or you know people in these private companies who have the resources to make it happen absolutely we uh, we need that moral will and political will and um, I guess the one thing I'll add to what you said is that having been vegan all my life and seen this, I am aware that even in the last five years, things really have picked up. Like it's sometimes it's hard for me to realize like how far we've actually it's like, wow, we actually have made so much change since, you know, even 10 years ago. Um, when I was in high school or when I was in college, the level of discourse, the awareness around plant-based diets. So it's like, obviously, we still have a long way to go. And like you said, we need we need this now and we need it fast and it's not happening, you know, fast enough or with enough urgency at all. But at the same time, I I think we should also remember, like, the change is happening. Like, there are a lot of people on the ground um, you know, people such as yourself who are really doing this important work and pushing this forward. And I think it is, it is happening. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be faster and bigger, you know, every day going forward. Exactly. But yes. And then which is why we need, um, you know, podcasters and, you know, activists <laughs> like yourself, um, who are bringing these topics to the fore because it is important for audiences and especially non-vegan audiences to hear these uh, you know thoughts and, and this discourse and I, I know that you were born vegan and very fortunate you know and and kudos you know to your parents especially to your mom uh, for having chosen this lifestyle for herself and for you most of us have not been uh, through that, you know, and we've had to sort of learn the hard way. Personally, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, I've had to experience some serious 
moments of awakening, right? Um, through lack of personal health, physical health, and, and so on. And, and there are so many non-vegans out there who are probably just walking around with eyes wide shut the way I was. And it's important for uh, those of us who are vegan, not to just sit at home and to say, well, at least I'm doing my little bit by eating this way, but it's our moral responsibility to really go out and share this and, and not be shy, not be hesitant and to find effective ways of doing it. You know, effective advocacy is really, really important. Um, and sometimes there is this branding that vegans get you know, amongst non-vegans that were militant and that were angry and were anti-establishment and, and things like that. I, I think that it's just a matter of finding your own voice in how you want to share uh, this lifestyle with people. And in um, and, and your podcast does a great job of, you know, promoting those ideas and, and by bringing a diversity of guests, you know, um, by showing so many different ways in which this can be done. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to add and then tell people where they can find you and go to learn more about your work? Sure. Um, well, our website is theversafoundation.org. We can be found at, at Javinity, and that's spelled as J-I-V-I-N-I-T-I -I -I on Instagram and on Twitter and on LinkedIn as Javinity Research. Um, and, you know, you'll see everything that you uh, want to see about the kind of work that we do and the content, the consumer advocacy content we put out. Um, we're also doing uh, these research projects that I mentioned. We're always actively on the lookout for young scholars, uh, vegan or not vegan. You know, I'm very happy to work with non-vegan people because becoming vegan is a matter of immersion, education, and awareness. And if by working for a vegan organization, volunteering your time and effort for an organization that is daring enough to put out a different perspective than how you're used to eating or living, that's a great way of um, you know, immersing yourself in new ideas. Uh, so we're always on the lookout for research scholars. So if you are a public health professional um, or you're a student and, and you're wanting to learn more about planetary health, public health, whole food plant-based, lifestyle medicine, and so on, please write in to us. And our email is divinity at diversifoundation.org. Thank you so much, Nivi. This conversation was wonderful and keep up your amazing work and everything you're doing. Thank you so much, Serena. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode or are enjoying the podcast as a whole and want to support me and help get this information in front of more people, I would love it if you could share this episode and also leave a rating and review of the podcast in the iTunes or Spotify app or wherever else you are listening from.